The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're continuing our study this morning in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at the first five verses today of chapter 3. And as you look at these verses, you just see the urgency, you see the pain that is in Paul's words. Twice he says, first in verse 1 he says, when we could bear it no longer. Just can't stand this anymore, he says. Then in verse 5 again he says, when I could bear it no longer. You know, Paul saw himself as a spiritual parent to these believers in Thessalonica. And he was concerned that their faith may fail in the midst of persecution. Now, he's concerned about them. They're suffering. We know that. And we heard about suffering this morning when Sharon talked about it in the voice, you know, the persecuted church. And we just see that here's a man who died for his faith because he wouldn't recant. But a lot of people in the face of persecution, they give up. They turn away. And he's concerned for the Thessalonians. He wanted to see their faith develop He wanted to see them become more and more stable and mature in their Christian life. He was concerned for them because he had to leave them much sooner than he ever wanted to. We know from Acts that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to flee from Thessalonica at night because of persecution. In Acts 17, 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So, Paul wanted to stay longer, but the brother said, look, you've got to get out of here. There's too much tension here. There's a lot of persecution. We need to keep you safe. You need to go. And he had planned once he left to come back, but he told us in chapter 2 that Satan had hindered him. And, you know, what did he mean by that? Well, I think, first of all, the Jews were involved in this, okay? Satan is the god behind this thing. He is affecting these Jews, and these Jews are persecuting him. I think also... This could probably refer to the security taken of Jason in Acts 17.9. And I think this security most likely was a guarantee that Paul would not return to the city. So they're telling Jason, you've got to put up a bond. You, you know, you've got to promise us this guy won't come back. So that's all probably part of why he didn't get to go back there yet. All right, in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, whenever you see the therefore, you have to look and find out what it's there for, okay? Because this opening conjunction connects this verse with the preceding chapter where Paul expressed his care for the Thessalonians. And it would be better if there really wasn't a chapter division here. It would be, I think, better for our thought process to just go on from chapter 2. Because it goes like this. He says in the end of chapter 2, For you are our glory and our joy. Therefore... When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to left behind in Athens. In other words, it's because of our great love for you that we feel this way, that we're so concerned about you. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer. Paul is having a real hard time dealing with the separation that he's, that's going on right now. And it's Paul's parental fear for his Thessalonian children that in the short time he was with them, it might not have been enough to prepare them for the suffering, for the persecution that they were experiencing. 
Now he says, I could bear it no longer. Bear is from the Greek word stego. And it means to protect by covering, then to cover up with silence. It's kind of like a roof over a house. It protects the house from the elements, but it also conceals what's in there. And from this, the word came to mean simply to endure. And I think that's how he's using it here. I can't endure it any longer. And he says that twice in this chapter. I just can't take it, okay? Now, why was he so concerned for them? It was because he knew they're under persecution, because he was driven from the city because of the persecution. He knew that they're only a few months old in the Lord. They're very young Christians. This is a baby church. This church just got founded. And he knows as a young church, there's no mature leadership in that church. They don't have leaders because they're all brand new. So where do they go to get answers You know, when they have questions, when they're dealing with stuff? He had been forced to leave them too soon. He's just concerned they're not going to make it. Now, I think you'll agree that a lot of things can cause us anxiety in our lives. But I want you to see here that Paul's anxiety came because of his care for the churches. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. This is a really powerful verse if you know the context. Do you know the context? He says, and apart from other things, you know what those other things are? There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, like I said, if you just pull this verse out, okay, he cares about the churches. But what are these other things that he's talking about? Well, in the context, he's talking about all the suffering. I wasn't talking to you, Alexa. He's talking about all the suffering that they've gone through, okay? In this chapter, he says, five times I received 40 lashes. Five times. How many of you would go beyond one, okay? Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he means by rocks, not he wasn't smoking anything, okay? Three times he was shipwrecked. And so when you look at the context, you see this is amazing. He's been through all this physical suffering, and he says, apart from those other things, there's the pressure daily on me of the anxiety for the churches. In other words, what's really bothering him is not all this physical stuff. It's his care for the church. He loves these people. He's anxious about them because he doesn't know how they're going to hold up. Now, the word anxiety here is from the Greek word meromna. And meromna means to be anxious about, to worry, be concerned for. What is interesting here is that Paul is doing what he commands the Philippians not to do. Look what he told the Philippians in 4.6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made. In other words, don't be anxious. Go to God in prayer over it. The Greek construction here forbids the continuance of an action that is already going on. So Paul's saying, stop being anxious. The word anything here is the Greek word medes. And it literally means not even one thing. So here Paul tells the Philippians, don't be anxious. Meromnao. That's the verb. It's the same one used by Yeshua in the Gospels where Yeshua said, do not worry about your life. So both Yeshua and Paul are telling believers, don't be anxious. 
Now this word meramnao is also used in Luke 10, 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. And again, meramnao, he is, Yeshua is not telling Martha she shouldn't serve. But her anxiety was distracting her heart from serving in an acceptable way. She's overburdened about this. Okay, she's freaking out. Hey, tell my sister to come help me. i got to do all this stuff on, on my own. This word meramnao is also used in 1 Corinthians 7, 31 and 32. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So again, over and over, he tells the believers that he doesn't want them to be anxious. Now, meramnao, anxiety, care, concern, can be used negatively, meaning to be anxious or distraught over something. Worry, in a negative sense, as we've seen in these verses. But it can also be used positively for proper care and concern, for worry, in a good sense, if you can use worry in a good sense. All right? Look at Philippians 2, 19 and 20. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered for news of you. For I have no one like-minded who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The word concerned here, again, meramnao. So Timothy is just like Paul. Paul's concerned for the churches, and Timothy is also concerned for the churches. He is Paul's disciple, and he is just a little mini Paul. Really is, all right? And that's what the Bible says. Luke says, when a disciple is fully trained, he'll be like his teacher. Timothy is like his teacher. He was like Paul. He had a love for the believers. He said that Timothy would be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And the word genuinely here is the Greek word genesios, and it means legitimate or genuine. He has the heart of a true disciple. He genuinely cared for the Philippians. The word concern here, again, is the Greek word meramnao, which means to be anxious, to be worried, to be burdened in a serious way, to be troubled with care. This is the word Paul uses in our text in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight about the anxiety for all the churches. He uses the noun form here. It's meramna. The care of the church was shared by Paul and Timothy. Now, Timothy and Paul's anxiety was for the spiritual welfare of of others. That's what they're anxious about. That's biblical anxiety. What is forbidden to do in our own lives, be anxious, we're commanded to do for others. 1 Corinthians 11.25 That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Care, here's Merimnao again. This verse states that our Christian responsibility is for other believers. It uses the identical verb. Christian love is to be seen in being anxious, concerned for others and their spiritual well-being. You know, it's amazing how often we see this reversed, right? And we find ourselves guilty of anxiety of our own interest to the exclusion of the well-being of others. Who cares what's happening in their life? I'm worried about this and that in my own life. No, that's wrong anxiety. If you're anxious about your life and your problems, that's wrong. But to be anxious about the spiritual health of other people, that's biblical. All right, let's go back to our text. He says, we were willing to be left behind. 
The word willing here is the Greek word eudokia, and it means to be well-pleased, to be willing, determined, to think it's a good thing to do. And it really stresses here the idea that this is a choice on their part, all right, on Paul's part. He says, I'm willing, no compulsion here, I'm willing to be left behind. Now, left behind, katalepo, it means to leave, to leave behind, or in the passive, to be left alone, or behind, or forsaken. This word was used of leaving loved ones at death. Think about what Paul's saying here. It carries the idea of being bereaved. Paul says, I'm willing to be bereaved. I'm willing to, to go through this deep pain for your sake. See, the idea here is that Paul needed Timothy in the present work he was doing. But because of his concern for the church at Thessalonica, he's willing to be there alone, to be forsaken. And in these cultures, to be alone was a dangerous thing. It was dangerous to travel alone. It was dangerous to be alone, especially when you're preaching the gospel. But he's willing to be grieved to help them. And he says, I want to be left at Athens alone. Now, the account in Acts doesn't include all the details, but we do learn that Paul first went to Athens alone while Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. That's Acts 17, 14. They joined him in Athens as soon as they were able, but Paul's intense anguish and wondering how the Thessalonians were doing led him to send Timothy back to them. Now, Paul couldn't go back because of this bond, because he's having problems, you know, Satan's hindering him. But remember that Timothy had a Greek father and probably looked more Greek. So he'd be able to slip into this Greek city, probably not that much noticed, whereas Paul was a rabbi and they'd know this guy at sight with no problem, all right? So Paul couldn't go, but Timothy probably had a lot better chance of getting in there. And we also learned that Silas was somewhere else in Macedonia, probably in Philippi. But that meant that Paul was left alone in Athens and then in Corinth for several months until these faithful workers were able to rejoin him in Corinth. What's interesting here is the term alone is plural. Look what it says, though. We were willing to be left alone. How does we be alone? Huh? (laughs) Acts 18.5 implies that both Silas and Timothy were on assignment at this time. So this verse may be an example of Paul's use of we as an editorial plural, referring only to himself, because we can't be alone, all right? So Paul is using the word we here in a singular sense. When he says, when we could endure it no longer, he means I could endure it no longer. He says, we thought it best, and we sent Timothy. He's really just referring to himself. It's kind of a singular use of we, which is not uncommon at all, all right? So he's just, he's talking about himself. This is how he feels. It was painful for Paul to send Timothy on this mission, but he did it because he's more concerned about the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians than he is for his own comfort. Okay? So if you compare Paul to your average ministers, you're like, something's missing here. You know? It seems like, especially check out these TV guys. They're, They're not really concerned about the flock. They're just concerned the flock keeps bringing the money in. Okay? I need a new jet. My old jet's not fast enough. Please send more money in, okay? Paul doesn't care about all that. He's just concerned about these people. And 
remember, Paul's writing this letter to them from Corinth. So he stayed in Athens for a while, then he went to Corinth, and when he got to Corinth, Timothy and Silas came back to him, so they're all rejoined to Corinth, and it was after Timothy came back there that he wrote this letter, because now he had information. Timothy went up there, got some information, came back and told him, they're doing okay, they're doing great. So now his anxiety is is lessened some. He says in verse 2, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Since Paul couldn't be with them, he says, I'll do the next best thing. I'll send Timothy, who's just like me, my trusted companion. He'll go up there and he'll teach him. He calls Timothy a brother. Basically, people, this just means he's a Christian, all right? He's a believer. He's one who has been born in the family of God through the new birth and has trusted Christ. Now, the Greek manuscripts differ here. Manuscript B has co-worker, which you see in our text here. Manuscripts Alpha and A have the word minister. And you're going, okay, what's the discrepancy here? Well, minister, not like today, but back in the day, the original word minister denoted the lowly service of a slave. That's what minister meant. Didn't mean someone, you know, with a special outfit and you know, head of the church or whatever. It meant a lowly slave, all right? That's what it meant. So possibly what happened here is a scribe who's writing this down, you know, everything's done by hand. He's shocked that Paul calls Timothy a co-worker with God. Oh, that's... T- Wait a second. He's putting Timothy on way too high a level. I can't do it. Let's just call him minister. All right? And that's how you get textual variants. All right? Co-worker is from the word sunergo, which ergon means work, uh, deed, task, employment, plus the preposition son, which means with or together. So this word refers to someone who's working with God. They're a co-worker with God. They're a team player. And Timothy is just like a faithful son to Paul in his labors in the Lord. Let's look at this text in Philippians again to see Paul's thoughts on Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon. I got a comment on this before we go on. How many of you are waiting for Timothy to show up? Anybody? You say, well, of course not. That's written to the Philippians. Okay, good. How many of the Philippians are waiting for Timothy? You think anybody? Why? Why would they not be waiting for him? Well, but see, this word soon is the same word used of the Lord Yeshua in every text. Yeshua is coming soon. And we're still waiting 2,000 years later. Right? But Timothy's coming soon, and we're like, oh, that already happened. we got to get together here, folks. we got to put our thoughts together and say soon means soon. Soon can't be 2,000 years. All right. Let's, let's, that's just no extra charge for that. All right. He said, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. Paul says, there's nobody like Timothy, watch, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He really cares about you people. For, then, he, then he says, but most people, here's where they all, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Yeshua the Christ. Yep, everybody's into their own thing. They're not really that worried, but Timothy cares about you. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel. So Timothy is his, like I said, duplicate. He's sending Timothy. He even says, I think it's to the Corinthians, I wish I could come to you, I can't come. So here's Timothy. He's just like me. Take him. He'll he'll teach you of all my ways. 
All right? All right, why is he sending Timothy? He's sending Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul wanted Timothy to do two things. He wanted to establish and encourage the Thessalonians, and both are necessary, but establishing comes first. Establish here is from the Greek word sterizo, and it means to support, to stabilize, to establish, to fix, to strengthen. A lot of translations use strengthen here. That's a good translation. This word is used 14 times in the New Testament, and in all but two of its uses, it's used metaphorically of providing some form of spiritual stability or strength. You're coming alongside and you're providing some spiritual stability to help people. The verb sterizo is employed frequently in those contexts where someone is in danger of falling in some way or another. Remember, Paul's worried about the Thessalonians. He doesn't want them to fall away from the faith. So he sent in Timothy, I want you to encourage them. I want you to strengthen them. We see this in all kinds of literature at the time. For example, when um, Sirach says, when the rich person totters, he is supported, and he uses that word, he's supported by friends. In other words, you need help, okay? You're about to fall. In 2 Clement 2.6, it speaks of how it is a great thing to establish those that are falling. Again, encourage them, help them. Philo comments that those who are carried in different directions in their life are those who cannot be established. They're going in too many different directions. But in the New Testament, Sterizo points to the process of establishing someone in the faith, especially in the face of apostasy or persecution. So someone's going through a very difficult time, a persecution, and this person comes along to try to strengthen them. How was Timothy to strengthen them? Well, Romans 16, 25, I think, tells us. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, and that's our word, all right, sterizo, according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua the Christ, according to Revelation. So if we're to stand fast in the Lord, it comes from the Scriptures, He says it's the gospel, it's the preaching, it's the revelation, it's the word of God. Listen, people, if you're going to be established in the Christian life, if you're going to stand fast in the Christian life, it comes from knowing the word of God. It comes from spending time in the word of God. That's why I'm always nagging you about reading your Bibles, okay? Christianity 101, you should be reading through your Bible cover to cover every year. That's basic. That's 15 minutes a day. If you love the Lord, you got to love His Word. If you want to be strong, you got to be in it. Because listen, people, you can't trust somebody you don't know. Let me say this. You shouldn't trust somebody you don't know. That's foolish, okay? You trust people because you know them. Well, Psalms 9.10 says, Those who know your name put their trust in you. Now, we know what name means here, right? It's not Bob or Joe or what does it mean? It's character. Those who know your character. When you know God's character, you put your trust. And the only way you'll know His character is from spending time in the Word of God. It's the only way you're going to know it. It's not going to be revealed anywhere else. If you know His character, you trust Him. All right, so Timothy was also to exhort them in their faith. Now, this is from Parakaleo, which has the idea of encourage, comfort, cheer up, help. So Timothy is sent to establish and exhort the Thessalonians. Now here's what's interesting. In chapter 3 that we're in, if you go down to verse 13, it says that God will establish your hearts. 
Well, here he's telling Timothy to do it, and there he says God will do it. So who is it, God or Timothy? Yes, thank you. Yes. God uses human servants to establish people in their faith. He uses people. Get alongside, encourage them, help them. But such efforts are only effective when God makes them effective. We are co-laborers. That's how God gets things done for the most part. He doesn't just zap them from heaven. You'll be all right. He uses His people to come alongside, to strengthen, to encourage. In verse 3, He says that no one be moved by these afflictions. Again, that's His big fear. They're going to be moved by these. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. The word moved here is the word sino. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And originally this word means to wag the tail. I know that makes a ton of sense. That no one will wag the tail by these afflictions. What? What is, the, what is he talking about? It was used especially of a dog wagging its tail to get its way. To allure. You know, your dog comes over and he's wagging his tail. You're so, oh, you're such a good boy, you know. He's wagging that tail. He's telling you he's happy. You get happy. Then the word came to mean to beguile through flattery or to draw aside from the right path. Homer uses this word of being flattered. And Satan told Eve that she would be like God if she ate of the tree of life and she fell for it. All right? But I think in view of the cause expressed in the words, by these afflictions, I think it's better to understand the sense here to be shaken, to be disturbed, to be moved, to be agitated. We're moved by the afflictions. It refers to the suffering they're experiencing at the hands of their countrymen. So he goes, I don't want you shaken. I don't want you disturbed by these afflictions. I don't want you to leave the faith. So the goal of Timothy's establishing and exhorting them is that they wouldn't be unsettled, they wouldn't be deceived by these trials they're going through. And here's the, here's the issue, people. Without a good understanding of truth concerning the place of suffering in our lives, believers are in great danger of being shaken in their faith. Again, it's understanding that makes the difference here, right? Now, for here, he says, for you yourselves know that we're destined. For is the word gar, which gives the reason that the Thessalonians should not be shaken by circumstances and turn away from their faith. Here's the bottom line, people. Afflictions are not accidents, okay? It's not, oh, look what happened to me. What a terrible accident. He says you are destined for this. The word destined is kami, and it has the idea of appointed. Our trials are part of God's sovereign plan. See, Paul didn't teach these new believers that miraculous healing, financial success, were their right because they're king's kids. He taught them rather that as Christians, you're destined for trials. You're destined for persecution. American Christian culture is so obsessed with this health-wealth gospel stuff. I don't care if people say they don't even believe it. It affects them in some way, and we all feel God deserves to do something for us, especially if we're good, especially if we're nice Christian people. Then God owes me a certain thing. He, you know, I serve Him. He gives me material blessings. He makes sure I'm healthy, wealthy, and everything's wonderful. 
Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that their time of suffering was in God's control. These afflictions were appointed as a part of the normal Christian life. Believers have been appointed with affliction. Ernest Best, in his commentary, I think, sums this up. He says this, Paul is not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church return to normality. Normality is persecution. Now, I know we're American Christians, so it's different for us, okay? But let's take us out of the equation. The rest of the world is really suffering, all right, for what they believe. The theology of suffering was a centerpiece in the early Christian teaching. Unlike many modern theologies that promise prosperity and in the absence of trouble, you know, if you just be a good Christian, when you are taught this, when you are taught, listen, as a Christian, God promises to keep you healthy, God promises to make you wealthy, God promises that you'll be the head, not the tail, everything will be wonderful, if that's the stuff you're taught, and then you're suffering, what do you think? What do you do? God abandoned me. All this promise that I was going to have all this stuff and I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, I don't have this. Look what Paul told Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Yeshua will be persecuted. That's an important verse, people. Because there's a lot of Christians that receive no persecution whatsoever because they're chameleons. They blend in with the culture they live in. They talk like the world. They act like the world. Why would anybody persecute you? But you start acting godly and you start condemning the culture we live in, oh buddy, you're going to be in trouble. If things keep going the way they are, it won't be long. You speak out against the LGBTQ elemental P movement and they'll put you in jail. Okay? I mean, they're trying to do that now. All right? You know, do you all know this is LGBTQ Pride Month? It's Pride Month. They get a whole month to be proud. First of all, the Bible says pride is a sin. Okay, pride's a sin. The Bible says nothing good about pride. And these people are proud of their sin, which is double sin. You're proud about what you're sinful about. It's just, our society is so upside down right now, it isn't even funny. But listen, if you're godly and you speak out against the culture, if you stand against the culture, if you say, I know the difference between a woman and a man, You're going to be judged. You're going to be condemned. It's the world. We're living in a sick world. And let me tell you something, people. I I wish I could prove this, but I really believe there's something more going on here. I mean, chemically, something going on. I don't know if it's chemtrails. I don't know if it's in the water. I don't know if it's a food reading. But I've never seen... So many people thinking they're homosexual or guys thinking they're girls or girls thinking they're guys. That's not normal. What? Why? Why this sudden thing where everybody thinks they're something else and people can't even tell what a woman is? Oh, my word, people. Come on. It's not that hard. Okay? It's really not that hard. God made two sexes. Okay? And here's the thing. L, lesbian, L-G, gay, B is for what? Anybody know? Bisexual. Guess what? That's two sexes. (laughs) Right in their own name, they say there's two sexes, but now they're going to have to change that letter or something because it's messing them up. Because now... No, they just added more. Yeah, I know, they did. That's why they just keep... 
They just keep adding more letters. Listen, people. The darker our society gets, the brighter the light the gospel shines in it, but that brings persecution. It really does. Because again, speak out against this stuff. You'll find yourself losing your job. You'll find yourself being persecuted, whatever, because this is what the world accepts. You know what's challenging today? Try to find a a TV show that you can watch without a homosexual or transgender on it. Try. Yeah, I know, because they're pushing it majorly down our throats. All right, let's move on here. (laughs) (laughs) Push the wrong button there. All right, verse 4. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. All right, we kept telling you. This is an imperfect tense in the Greek, and it means repeated action in the past time. In other words, Paul warned them about persecution when he was with them. He warned them over and over because he knew it was going to happen. He says that we were going to suffer affliction. Believers are destined to this. Now, William's translation has a footnote in it. It says this of affliction. It says, a picture of a loaded wagon crushed under its heavy load. That's the picture he wants us to see of persecution. In other words, it's crushing, it's debilitating. All right, well, let's go on. He says, just as it has come to pass. In other words, you're suffering. We warned you, and it's happening, And just as you know. You know, we told you about it. It shouldn't be a surprise for you. Then in verse 5, he says, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This reiterates his concern that the reason he sent Timothy only adds to the dimension of activity of Satan the tempter. Satan here has tempted you, so that's why I'm concerned. What's going on there? The tempter is involved. And the tempter here is just one of the many descriptive titles of the devil that reveal both his character and his activities and his strategies. Now again, like God, Satan uses people. He works through people. He stirs them up. He gets them involved. So we have a human aspect. We have a divine aspect. Specifically, he says, He's afraid that their faith would falter. So he sent Timothy to discover what's going on with them. Uh, Have they given up? Are they still standing fast? What is going on with these people? I sent to learn about your faith. Paul was anxious. He was concerned that this persecution would destroy them. And he expresses the possibility of their apostasy. In the end of this verse, he says that somehow... The tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. What exactly does he mean when he says our labor would be in vain? Well, vain is the Greek word kenos, and it means vain, empty, fruitless, without effect, without reaching the goal. Paul says, I'm I'm concerned that our, our time spent there is going to be without effect, without reaching the goal. Because Paul knew that because persecutions and temptations, that apostasy was a very real possibility. Now get what he's saying here, because most people don't get this. All right? If they're Christian, they're fine. They'll, they'll last, they'll stand. That's not what Paul's view is here, all right? He's worried about it. And what I want you to understand here also, our Lord taught this very same concept, the same idea in the parable of the soils. Okay? He described the way that some fall away because of tribulation and persecution, when it arises because of the Word. 
So what I want to do now is let's go to the Lord's teaching on this and see if we can understand why Paul has this anxiety. Remember, Paul knows this stuff, okay? So let's first look at the parable. Mark 4, 2 through 9. And as he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured it. Okay, if you've ever done any planting, you understand that, right? Doggone birds, I'm trying to get, grow seeds and you're eating the seeds, okay? It's not going to work out too well. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, but since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun arose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil, and it produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. All right, this parable gives insight into people's response to the gospel. And in the end, I think it's a very encouraging parable. The parable of the soils is the very first parable in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And a parable is a placing alongside for the purpose of comparison. Dodd says this, A parable at its simplest is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to arouse it into active thought. In other words, what is he saying here? You start thinking about it, try to figure it out, all right? Well, Yeshua's first century audience were very familiar with what he's talking about here. You have to understand that, okay? When we read this, we're like, ah, I've never planted anything in my life. I don't know what they're talking about, right? You thought you got vegetables from the grocery store, right? No, they, they come out of the ground, all right? They had this hard, stony ground, and they got very primitive tools, that often made little impression on the soil. So they throw this seed and they see it just get wasted and they're like, they don't have that much to start with. The birds are taking it away. And they know some of it's just you know, going to take root and then die out and they, they are familiar with these things. It's part of the struggle they live with. So they understood what the Lord was saying. But the question was, did they realize that they were... What he was saying here was illustrative of what could hinder them receiving his important message. So that's the important thing. He's giving it the parable. He's talking about spiritual life. Now, we know who the players are in this parable by looking at other texts. First of all, we know the sower is who? The sower is Christ. Matthew 13, 37. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. There you go. Yeshua is constantly sowing the message of the kingdom. But here's the thing, people. I don't think we need to limit the identity of this parable to Yeshua. I think the sower can be anybody that's presenting the gospel. All right? Now, the word being sown is the gospel message. It's the word of God. We know that because Luke 8 says, and the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So there's the word. Yeshua is spreading the word. It's about preaching the gospel. This parable shows us how people will respond to the gospel message. Now, let me ask you this. Who's responsible to sow the seed of the Word of God? Anybody who has that. Anybody who knows the gospel is responsible to share it. I don't know why anybody who has the gospel, knows the gospel, would not want to share that. 
okay, with anybody and everybody they come in contact with. Anybody who understands the glorious gospel would be thrilled to just share it with other people. And I'll tell you, people, sometimes I get sharing the gospel, I'm so pumped up and I'm so fired up, and then when it's done, I think to myself, I'm not getting a commission on this. Why do I get so excited about it? Because it's just who we are as Christians. We want other people to see this. Now, we have four kinds of soil in this parable. The first one is the hard soil. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. All right, so the first kind of soil is the the path that's stomped down, it's hardened, nothing grows there. You've all seen this, okay? If you go to the woods or you go somewhere where there's constant traffic, it's bare because it just gets packed down and nothing grows there. So the people represented here are those who have hardened hearts. Who's that? It's everybody who has not been called by God. It's those who Yahweh has not given a new heart. God has not taken out their stony heart and given them a heart of flesh. So they're dead in their sin and they cannot respond to the gospel. Look what Paul told the Corinthians. The natural person, that's sukkakos, it's the man without the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's just not going to, I know, I don't want it. And look it, for they are folly to him. He says, he's not able to understand them. Now, we know Satan's no longer in the picture, but men are still dead, and men don't have the ability to respond to the gospel unless God calls them. Have you met people like this? You share the gospel with them, they're like, that's stupid, who cares? Who cares? I've told you before, the first time I ran into this was right after I became a Christian. I went to the bookstore, I bought a bunch of gospel tracts, because that's how I got saved, someone gave me one, and I went to the party that Friday night, and I was so excited. Because when I read that track, boom, I just, and so I'm excited. I'm handing out tracks to everybody there. And they're looking at them and they're throwing them down. And I'm like, what? Come on, did you read that? Yeah, I don't care. I'm like, what do you mean? This is the gospel, you know, and I was so, and I was so disappointed. I was like, I don't get it, Lord. It affected me, but they just didn't care. None of my friends, none of them responded to the gospel. So I've met this. I've seen this. I've been there, Okay. You attempt to share the gospel, they just have no interest. And I'm like, you read the same track I read, how do you not respond? Well, Yeshua taught us, you're going to get this response when you're sharing the gospel, all right? Listen, now here's what I want you to understand about this parable, it's really important. This parable teaches us how people respond to the gospel. But, I want you to understand that the soils can change, okay? That's so important, all right? We were all at one time hard soil. The seed just was taken away. So we continue to cast seed knowing the result is up to God. And that makes it exciting. Put the seed out there. You, you know, don't look at someone and say, oh, they're hard soil, I won't save my seed. No, you don't know that. Okay? And listen, they may be hard seed now. And next year they may not be hard soil again. I mean, they may be open to the gospel next year. You don't know that. Now, most people see these next two soils as non-believers. Guess what? I don't. I know that shocks you, okay? But listen, most people see this parable as only one out of four of the soils being receptive to the gospel, but that's not how I see it. I think the last three soils are all believers, and I'm going to try to explain that briefly here. So who's right? Well, you'll have to study it for yourself and come to your own conclusions, all right? 
That's your job as a Christian, to be a Berean and search the Scriptures and see if it's so. But let me give you my, my side of the story here. The rocky soil. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. That sounds good, doesn't it? The word receive here is in the present tense and has the idea of keep on receiving. Now, they're receiving it with joy. Now, think about John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God. So these people, they're believers. The word joy here is hara, from the same Greek root as, as grace. It's a response to what God has given them. This person believed the gospel. Look at Luke 8, 12-13. The ones along the path are those who have heard, Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Okay, so what happens? They they didn't believe, so they can't be saved. So if you believe, you're saved, right? Got that? They couldn't believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root, so they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. So Luke tells us that the ones on the hard soil do not believe. Okay, they can't believe and be saved. But the ones on the rocky soil, they believe. And what happens when you believe? You're saved. you got to get that, people. When you believe, you're saved. The Bible never talks about faith in some kind of pretense way. Like, well, they said they believed, they thought they believed, they imagined they... No, if it says they believe, that's the Word of God telling you that. That means they believe. Mark it down. And they believed, and they were saved. But testing and persecution causes them to fall away. Verse 17, And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. All right, got tribulation, they fall away. When afflictions or persecutions come on account of the word, because of their stands as a believer, they, they can't handle it. So they just fall away. They bow, they back down, they shut up, they do whatever, they stop whatever it was doing to cause the persecution. Now, affliction here refers to the problems of life that come as a test of our faith, and persecution is opposition from others because of the Word of God, because of your godly stance. And both of these categories of problems can be great opportunities for the application of doctrine. You know, if you know the truth, you're grounded in the truth, you're going to know what the Word of God says. But these rocky ground believers, they give up when the going gets rough. This is what Paul was concerned was going to happen to the Thessalonians. That's why he's trying to encourage them. That's why he sent Timothy. That's why he has anxiety. The words fall away here are from the Greek word skandalizo, which only occurs in biblical Greek and literature that's influenced by biblical Greek. The verb is only used metaphorically, and it means to enslave into sin, or to take offense at, to give offense to, to anger. Thus, here they're ensnared in sin. The persecution becomes a stumbling block. Scandalizo is clearly used of believers. See, some people say, well, they weren't really believers. Well, look at this text in 1 Corinthians 8.13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... Who's my brother? It's another Christian. If it makes him stumble, scandalizo. 
I will never eat meat lest I make my brother scandalizo. So this is truly, clearly, this word is used of a Christian. A Christian is caused to stumble by this persecution. And in this case, the word of the kingdom is immediately received with joy that you'd expect from (laughs) what the gospel is. You hear this word, listen, you are a sinner. You were born a sinner. You're under the damnation of God because of your sin. There's nothing you can do about it. But guess what? Christ did something for you. He came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitution of death for you. Who wouldn't get excited about that message? All you have to do is trust what He did for you. So who wouldn't get excited about that? But because the message doesn't become firmly, firmly rooted in their heart, and when tribulation and persecution arises because of the message... It just becomes overpowering, and they forsake the faith. They turn away. Because the message is simply received with joy, it's not developed. There's nothing to be relied on in times of trouble. They don't have doctrine. They're not familiar with the Word of God. It's not that the trouble is too great for them to bear, but that the root is, hasn't been developed. And I think, listen, people, we have so many of these kind of people And here's the reason. The church today has forsaken the teaching of the Word of God. Plain and simple. They're given three points in a poem. They're having light shows and all kinds of extravaganza, but they're not teaching the Word of God. And without the Word of God, you're not going to make it. Okay? They're not encouraging the Word of God. And that's why people are not in the right environment. I think someone can understand the gospel, they can trust Christ, they can become a Christian, but if they're not in the right environment, if they're not being fed, if they don't have other believers to encourage and support them, how are they going to make it? The shallowness of the Christian experience today and the shallowness of teaching is probably why you know so many people just give up. They can't handle the trouble, they can't handle the persecution, they don't want to be different. They don't want to be entitled to Jesus freak or whatever other people are calling him. Although the message received, it's just not developed. It's accepted with open arms because it's an incredible message. But it just doesn't do anything in their lives. Do you know believers like this? They've trusted Christ. They, they, they say that you go over the gospel with them, they say, oh, I believe that. They're just, you wouldn't know it, Okay. Verse 17, I think, describes the behavior of Yeshua's followers who abandon him and flee when the guards come to arrest him. They come to arrest him, and they're like, oh, we're out of here, man. You know, we're not getting arrested. We're not going through this. And it's funny because he predicted that would happen. They're going to come, and you're going to all run. No, no. Peter's like, not me, Lord. (laughs) Yeah. People, here's what we have to understand, I think. Saving faith is not the end, as many assert that it is. You've come to Christ. You trusted Christ. That's the beginning, okay? That's the beginning of your relationship with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong here. When you trust Christ, you are adopted by the Father. You're as sure as heaven as if you're already there. You are in Christ in union with Him. Nothing can separate that. But here and now, in this physical, temporal life, you're to grow. You're to learn. You're to move on in your relationship. And if you don't, you're going to have trouble with dealing with life. All right, then we go, let's go into the weedy soil, Mark 4, 18 through 19. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those who, they hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. 
This should be labeled American Christianity. Okay? <laughs> the sole point is that the life of the recipient, they receive the message, that's not the only seed growing there, though, okay? They got all these other relationships, all these other things that are going on. This soil, in this soil, the word germinates, it takes root, it appears to initially flourish, because it's good soil that's here, but then the cares of the world pull from the things of God. See, each of us has to be aware that in a very short time, we can find ourselves so taken with what's temporal that we forget about what's eternal. And if you think it can't happen to you, Paul warns, be warned, he that thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Here's the believer who doesn't have his priorities straight. Instead of having a passionate desire for the Word of God and learning the Word of God to strengthen his life, they're into all kinds of other things. They don't apostatize, so to speak. They continue in the faith, but their growth is stunted. They don't follow the words of Christ. In Matthew 6, Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom is just not first in their lives. They have many other interests that draw away from the fellowship of the Lord. I think one of the problems we have in America is we're lured by the deceitfulness of riches. Okay, there's no doubt about that. All right, it's just jammed down our throat, especially if you watch any TV or movies. The Hollywood people, this is your goal, this is your standard to have everything they have. It's just a false, you know. Paul said this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I read that verse and I immediately think of Amway. Because Amway had such a Christian push behind. Oh, we're Christians and we're, and I'm like, and you're, and people have pictures on their refrigerator of a yacht or a mansion over here. And this is my goal. And don't sit in this chair until you reach this level. And it's all motivated by lust. And I'm thinking, how do you combine Christianity with this drive to be rich? Look what he says happens. It's a harmful desire that plunges people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money's not evil. It's the love of it that's the problem. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. So Paul gives here a very stern warning against loving money. More stern than you think. Because if you look at the Greek, it's a little stronger here, okay? The word used here for pierced is peripero, and it means to penetrate entirely, to pierce through. It's used of putting meat on a spit. Jam that thing through, okay? That's what the lust for money will get you. That's the kind of pain it'll give you. He's trying to give you a vivid picture of this is your goal in life, you're going to be pained. Because it brings no satisfaction, all right? You know, riches promise you so many things they can't give, which is satisfaction, true heart satisfaction. And it becomes a God in itself that rules men's lives. And people who aren't wealthy seem to just, i got to go after this with everything I have. Why? What's your goal in life? That's what you have to figure out. Is your goal in life to be a servant of Christ, to be godly, to seek first the kingdom of God? Or is it to have a bigger house, better car, all this other stuff? There's a lot of lure, especially in our culture, people. 
I've said it many times, I think our culture is one of the most difficult ones to be godly in because there's so many distractions. Do you know believers like this? They just, you know, they trusted Christ, but they're just so busy with everything else in life. They don't have time for Him. Let's move on to the good soil. But those that were sown on the good soil, they're the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Finally, there's a seed that lands on this soil and it just, free from hindrances, and it grows. And I think this is indicative of the person who hears the gospel, understands it, and sets up and develops their life to make progress in their Christian walk. Finally, fruit is going to be born that's useful to the farmer who sowed it. All right? Now, the word accept here is from the Greek word paradekomai, and it means to accept near. The word received or welcomed alongside of you is like a trusted companion. And in the ancient world, and even in the Near East today, you never let someone you don't trust alongside of you. And so here the Word of God is trusted, and it comes alongside, and you're spending time in it. And as every farmer knew, some seed is going to produce a harvest. That's why they sow it. They know some of it's not going to make it. They know the birds will eat some. They know some just won't do, but they know there will be a harvest. Some people are going to hear the Word. They're going to take it to heart. They're going to trust Christ. That's the encouragement. They're going to bring forth fruit. Now, what is fruit? Boy, some people have some crazy ideas what fruit is, okay? It's someone who doesn't smoke. They're bearing fruit for the kingdom. That's ridiculous, okay? Fruit is the result the Spirit produces, which is Christ-likeness. That's fruit. It's not something that's attached to the branch, fastened from without. It's organic product of the inner life. Too often, I think, attention is directed toward outward service and outward actions. Well, they do this, they do this, that's a fruit. No. Good fruit is Christ-likeness. And that's produced by the Spirit as we abide in Christ. Look, notice what Christ said in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. The branch just can't do it. It has to be connected. Unless it abides in the vine. You break that branch off and lay it aside, guess what? No fruit's coming. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we see here that as we abide in Christ, as we walk with him, as we learn of him, as we fellowship with him, the fruit is produced by him through us. In spite of all the problems that he faced, the farmer could be sure that some of this seed is going to flourish. And when it did, it would produce in abundance. So in the end, the message is positive, people. A harvest is going to come. The seed will bear fruit in receptive hearers. So we should be encouraged to share the gospel. People need it, and some people are going to respond. Now, please remember what I said earlier. The soils can change. That's really important. That's central to our Christian faith that change is possible. I know people that are hard soil. And you're like, man, it's, you they hear the gospel, hear the God, nothing, nothing. All of a sudden, boom, they take off. Okay, and it's like, oh wow, that's amazing. You know, I know rocky soil. I know people who are weedy soils. We had a kid in our youth department. <clears throat> he was there. He heard the message. He said he believed the gospel. 
he said he was a Christian, but yeah, he was just there. Okay. He had so many other interests. He just was, I think he liked the fellowship, just being around other people, just doing stuff. About 20 years later, he contacts me and tells me he's just in love with God. He is so excited. He is so pumped up. And I'm like, this dude got the weeds out and started growing. You know, soil can change. So don't give up on people. Okay. We need to just like Paul sent Timothy along to encourage, to strengthen them. That's what needs to happen. We need to do a little weeding to help somebody out. We need to do a little encouraging. Too often we just write them off. Don't do that. So let me ask you this morning, how's your heart condition? Which one of these soils are you? Yeshua is describing for us different responses to the gospel. So be encouraged. And remember, the greater the sowing, the greater the harvest. This is Paul's concern. All right. He says our labor would be in vain. I'm just I'm anxious about this. I'm troubled about this. This is why I'm sending Timothy, because I'm worried about you. I know there's severe persecution there. He wants them to be the good soil that will produce fruit. That's why he sends Timothy to strengthen and encourage them. And people, this is what we all need to be doing in each other's life. Strengthening and encouraging. Not condemning, not gossiping, not whatever else. We need to be strengthening and encouraging one another. Listen, especially when you see others going through trials and persecutions. Coming alongside. Helping them. We talked about this last week. Christianity is others-oriented. All the one another verses are meant to help. We need to work together in community to help each other out. To be what God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity just to go over this parable again and be reminded, Lord, I I thank you for the heart of Paul, for the heart of Timothy, Lord, that just cared so much about what you cared about. They weren't concerned about their lives and the things of this world. They were focused on you. Dear God, give us a heart like these men. May we care about your church. May we be anxious for the spiritual welfare of others and not anxious for the material things in our own life. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us. I pray, Father, you would use us in one another's life to encourage, to strengthen, to support. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? How would you theoretically remove weeds from weed soil? What is the first step you take to do that? Well, I would think to strengthen in the Word of God. This is the thing. Here's the problem. Most Christians don't read their Bibles. Okay? I've been on a campaign here for many, many years, and every, I constantly push our people to read through the Bible every year. I think it's a minimum. Read through the Bible. Or get familiar with the Bible. I've talked to so many people, and, and you're talking to these Christians. I've been a Christian 40 years. I've talked to Christian pastors. Never read the Bible cover to cover. And I'm like, how can you defend? How can you talk about this? You don't even know what it says everywhere. They might talk about something in one passage you never read that you don't know anything about. Get familiar with the book. That's how you start. Because when you know the truth of the Word of God, that's when you can deal things with those other things. But it all comes down to knowing the Word of God. That's the fundamental bottom line for a Christian. It's God's Word to us. It explains God to us. It explains what God wants from us. We just got to be in it. And I think the more you read the Bible, the more you get familiar with it, the more you understand life, the more you understand God, the more you know what right responses are. 
And I'm not talking about a deep theological study. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Not everyone's geared that way. But everybody can read. And if you can't read, guess what? You can put it on audio and you can just listen to it, okay? But there's no excuse today not to read your Bible. Because you can read it anywhere, everywhere. I got it on my phone. I got commentaries on my phone. I got Greek help. I got Hebrew stuff on my phone. You can study anywhere. There's just no excuse. Does that answer your question? Yes, yeah, it does. <laughs> Gary. Well, let me add to that and, and comment on your message. Um, I have been guilty of uh, surrendering or expecting the health wealth gospel to take care of our afflictions, you know. But it has been your nagging. In your preaching, that uh, I realize that my emotions will always fail me. But there's times I've felt like quitting. Which Well, brother, it's okay to be honest. That's what we talked about that a couple weeks ago, too. We got to start being honest with each other. You know, uh, people struggle. And when you struggle, you need others, you know. And that's why you make a call and you tell someone, hey, pray for me or talk me off the ledge. You know, I'm on the ledge about to jump. Talk me off. Help me out here. Like I say, it's been your preaching and and your nagging to read the words that I've at times um, realize that what I know doesn't match with how I feel and I, I have to go with what I know and I've come to know Christ more that's, that's the amazing thing trials will bring us closer or they'll push us away, depending on where we're at, you know. And the word again, the word is so fundamental there. If it's not in our heart, if we're not, you know, we don't have it grounded, it's going to drive us away. Anthony, I think the phenomenal part about man, because I'm a journalist, is that no matter who he uses, you know, he manifests to people that he want to use. It's closer, like you were, like you were saying. Now. The important part for me is to, if I lose the point in my mind that he will always be there through all this stuff. He's the God. Like, who, he's like, the God who stays. Right, That's why we sing that right, song. Right. You know. <laughs> Right. I'm gone. You know and that's I'm theology. Because a lot of people saying. think is if you don't live right, God will abandon yeah, you. Yeah. He's always his love is eternal, all right? Yeah. When I tell people hang in there when you know, here and there, sometimes I might come across a matter or, or even people who are working for, you know, that's my point to them. You know, if you lose that, if you lose that grip, you know. You might be hanging on just what if you lose that. And that's theology. Yeah, right. That's knowing the word of God. You know, you gotta you gotta keep that. <laughs> Stan. 
First uh, Corinthians three six. I have planted Apollos water. God gave the increase. It's up to God. He's got to give the growth. All right, we've got a question from one of the listeners. It says, which is a better translation, in your opinion, ESV or RSV? This all depends on the text you're dealing with. Okay? I, that's why I encourage you, use multiple translations. Because ESV, I like a lot. In some texts, it's terrible. And the Christian Standard Bible is awesome in some texts. and others, it's terrible. And it's the same with all of them. Because every translator has prejudices. Every translator has a theology they already believe, and so they, in fact, you can't help but do that. That's just how we're made. So you, you know, use different translations. Read through different translations. Compare different translations. You're going to get a favorite verse, you're going to love that verse, and you're going to read another translation, you're going to say, that doesn't say anything like I thought it. <laughs> you just lost your favorite verse, you know. Sorry about that, because it's the Greek and the Hebrew that really matters, and until we break down and get there, and like I said, I have not, sometimes I get, you know, excited about a translation and then I get to a text and I'm like, oh, they lost it here, you know? So use multiple. Look it up in different translations. Again, that's so easy to do. You can, you know, have, you can have 50 translations on your computer or your phone and you can compare things. It's just, it's really important. Don't stick to one. And make sure you keep Young's as one of them, okay, literal translation, because he's going to help you in a lot of areas. A little difficult to read, but, you know. Sometimes goes off mark sometimes. Yeah, and again, he sometimes goes off the mark. Is there a best audio book of the Bible? Um, I use the Christian Standard Bible on my phone from Takarda, and I it has audio with it. And I really like to read with the audio on, because that way I'm hearing what they're saying, I'm looking at what they're saying, and it just, I really enjoy reading that way, okay? And it's funny, because some of these words that you would never pronounce right, they're saying, you know, that means that. How do you get that out of that word, you know? But it's, uh, so there's just so much out there now, you know? But again, I use the Takarda Bible app, and I have different Bible programs with that, and one of them is the Christian Standard Bible, and the audio that's with that is, it's not one of these robot kind of things. It's like a real someone talking. I can't stand that robot stuff, okay? Yeah, a lot of them on the online Bible, too, on ESV, all of them, and it's somebody actually reading, so it sounds really good. Right. You want to get someone reading, it's a lot easier to go along with, okay? Now, I don't like to, you know, some people just put it on when they're in the car or whatever, and that's fine. You get the Word of God wherever, but I want to be focused. I want to, I want to, that's why I want to look at the text. I want to hear the text. I want to be immersed 